How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. I'm going to miss him. Yeah. We were friends, you know. Can I return it if it doesn't fit? It always fits. Eventually. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, moxie, and tonight... A multiverse of superheroes. That's right. On this bop in a movie, we're swinging to the latest Spidey flick, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. So, alright. Let's do this one last time. My name is Spider-Cody. I was bitten by a radioactive podcast, and for six years, I've been the one and only host of Box Office Pulp. I'm pretty sure you know the rest. I complained about The Dark Knight Rises, fell in love, saved the city, then I talked about Prometheus again and again and again, and, uh... Alright, people, let's do this one last time. My name is Mike Napier. I was bitten by a radioactive booger from the 1980s motion picture Revenge of the Nerds, and for the last 22 years, I thought I was the one and only sensational Spider-Mike. I'm pretty sure you know the rest. I saved the city, fell in love, got trash to take her clothes off again. Marriage got a little testy, made some dicey money choices. Do not invest in a pop-themed restaurant. Then some years passed, blah, 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 super boring, broke my back, lost a testicle. I buried MB, lost my other testicle. My wife and I split up, and I handled it like a champion, you know? All right, people, let's start at the beginning one last time. My name is Jamie Marshall. I was bitten by a radioactive goth chick, and for the last two years I've been in the one and only Jamie Lady. You guys know the rest. I joined a band, saved my dad, couldn't save my best friend, MB. So now I save everybody else, and I don't do podcasts anymore. And one day this weird thing happened. I mean, like, really weird. I was blown into last week. Literally, I landed on the internet, but not my internet. My spider sense told me to head to box office pulp. I wasn't sure why until I met the two of you. Dun dun dun! What's up, danger? Good night, everybody. That was enough podcasting for us, I think. We did a good job. <laughs> good night. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No Spider Man. Hooray! Anyways, folks, this is box office pulp. 
you caught our names, hopefully. We don't want to have to do this origin stories like six more times. And tonight we're doing a bop in a movie for what might be the very best Spider-Man movie, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. So before we jump into that commentary, I want you all to get your spidey senses tingling uh, by getting yourself drunk. We're, we're making drinks here. Uh, I'm just calling it the Spidey Shooter because it doesn't have an official name and it's pretty much just your normal red, white, and blue shooter. Please don't sue me, Marvel. So, uh, all you people at home, grab yourself a half ounce of Blue Croco, uh, one ounce of vodka. I'm a Tito's man myself, but you do you. Get yourself one half ounce grenadine, a can of 7-Up, and as many cherries as you want to garnish. So, start off. Take the grenadine. Pour that into a tall glass. Pilsner glass works great. Add about five ice cubes, then pour in the vodka. Now, if you're doing this professionally, you would layer the vodka in gently, so you get the red on the bottom, then a nice clear white stripe. You know, you could pour it over the back of a bar spoon to get it to layer properly. Fuck that, people. Just pour it in. Just dump that vodka. Then, uh, fill most of the rest of the glass up with 7-Up. This is to your taste, depending on how watered down and sweet you want this to be. And top that off with the blue Carico. Uh, then put the cherries on top. So the nice thing about goofing up that layering with the vodka is you'll get a nice red spot on the bottom and a nice blue spot on the top. Those weights should kind of separate out, and you'll get a two-colored Spidey drink. I'm about to try the Spidey drink. Uh, God have mercy on my soul. Oh, that tastes just like vodka. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just the Spidey drink? Like, it's not... It's, it's not a, like the Spidey shooter, I would say, because I mean, I, I like triple mine up to fill the whole glass. Uh, but you know, if you're you're doing it normally, it'd be a shot, and it'd be red on the bottom, then a little bit of vodka in the middle, making it clear, and then blue on the top, like red, white, blue. But I fucked up the mixing on mine, so it was red and blue. <laughs> Those are the important Spider-Man colors. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, word of warning: all the grenadine on mine is at the bottom. So unless you're taking a deep, deep drink. You're really just going to get the other liquors. You're not going to get that sweet cherry-flavored drink. Now, folks at home, as always, when you uh, you make this drink, there is a little little added extra mile you have to go. In this case, make the drink, take a swig, accidentally, inadvertently, cause the death of your uncle. It's the only way. And hopefully, uh, give it a couple of years, he'll visit you in your car to let you know that... Your recent thoughts about changing career paths have made him ghost sad. So be prepared for that. And thus I became Alcohol Man. <laughs> Peter. <laughs> <laughs> why, why was Uncle Ben also drunk? <laughs> were, were they hanging out drinking together and one just died in the car accident and Peter was like, oh, it should have been me driving that night. Peter. <laughs> Get the, get the Advil. Oh, they can never know. There. I, I don't want to do the show anymore. I just want to hear you say, Peter. Peter. Oh, uh, la the last time we got together and watched Spider-Man, we realized that Cliff Robertson just becomes Patrick Warburton <laughs> when he's dying. Peter. Peter. Oh. We're making gravy without the lumps. <laughs> so anyways, uh, folks, if you've never listened to a bop in a movie, we're going to watch the film and add a commentary track over top of it. You're welcome to 
pop in the movie to your DVD player, Blu-ray player, 4K player, you do you. I really love that phrase. I realize I use it all the time, but I love that phrase. So I'm going to do me and keep using it. It's so versatile. It five works. by five. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to watch the movie. You can watch the movie with us. Mike is going to count us down from three, and then we're going to start the film and start talking. Or you can treat this as just a normal old podcast. Listen to it without the movie. Again, you do you. It's your life. Is that year with great power responsibility? Like, is that alcohol man's credo? That's what he says every time he's chugging. You he's do doing, you. He's doing Edward Forty hands, and someone's like, it's a Monday. Shouldn't you be sober? And no, I do me. <laughs> no, that's oh, you just know what everybody should do, don't you, MB? I just really like the idea of this joke of him playing Edward Forty hands by himself on a Monday night. <laughs> I don't know how he taped the cans to his hands. That's a superpower. <laughs> or how he's going to get them off, but he's just partying in his own house and somehow answering texts with like his elbow when people are asking him if he's okay. Can we write this comic just a dude who has the power of drunk party games? Isn't it just box office pulp guy? He's the best <laughs> beer pong. We're <laughs> just describing yes, box office pulp guy. Uh, this is his secret life. Alright, now that I'm adjusting to the Spidey shooter, the blue... Uh, I keep muddling. I can't. I'm not sure. Caraco, Caraco, Sirocco. It's not that one. If you add that in the vodka, that's pretty much what the drink is. And it's going to be all grandy at the bottom because I didn't make mine a shot. It's not so bad now that I've gotten used to it. I'm kind of digging this. Can I start the commentary now? Oh, yes, please. We have like two hours ahead of us. Okay. One, two, three. Liftoff. I do want to say I did not, uh, like Cody, make a fancy drink for this commentary, but I did inject myself with some globulin green, so uh, I look forward to seeing the repercussions of that throughout this commentary. You fucking junkie. <laughs> it makes me feel alive. Never apologize. Whatever. You do you. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Thank you, Cody. Fetch me the Promachloropericine. <laughs> Too busy. My hands are full. I'm playing Edward Forty Hands. Jamie, fucking well done. <laughs> How many references can you fit into the first five seconds of this movie? We say as we're about to see the fucking cat value Jane Fonda Columbia logo. They're right. a fucking deep cut movie. The comics code. <laughs> I lost my shit when that popped up. That was nice. That was a nice reference. Okay, I'm going to try and run through my movie facts here quick. Go, 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 Directed go. Directed by Bob Parachetti, Peter Ramsey, and Rodney Rotham. It's the triple hat. I, I didn't have a good directing term for three people. The triumvirate. Screenplay by Phil Lord and Rodney Rothman. Cast. Oh, boy, there's a lot. Shane McMoore. Uh, Jake Johnson. Haley Steinfield. Marshala Ali. Uh, Brian Tyree Henry. Lily Tomlin, John Mulaney, Kamiko Glenn, Nicholas Cage, Leif Shriver, Chris Pine, Catherine Hahn. Music by Daniel Pemberton. Uh, editing by Robert Fisher Jr. Released December 14, 2018. Budget was $90 million. Box office hall. As of this moment, it could get higher. It might still be in theaters in some places. $374.8 million. Boom. Movie facts. And we didn't miss the Spider-Man 3 dancing reference. Got it. Nailed it. I'm obsessed with the fact that this takes place in an alternate universe where he did that for no fucking reason. <laughs> As Spider-Man. All the timelines are linked. They all had that moment where they awkwardly dance. 
Some had better reason, some had worse reason. I love finding out in the director's commentary that that had to be fought for. <laughs> Lord and Miller were not exactly for it. Huh. See, that seems like a thing the studio would have been like, hey, could you not make fun of our movie that, you know, basically derailed Spider-Man for a decade? <laughs> the god shot of Spider-Man always amuses me. This Spider-Man fucks. Just imagine, though, like if you look two years into the past and you were told that Sony's going to make their own independent animated Spider-Man film that doesn't share any continuity with these other Spider-Man movies. And it, it's. It's its own new continuity. We're going to read you the origin story. I, my response would have been to tell him just, oh, God, no, please stop. Sell the property outright to Marvel. Just let we them were all it. very confused when it was first announced because it was years before they announced that it was actually a Miles movie. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a fucking a movie that was Tom Rothman's idea, too. I blew my mind to find out he was the guy who was like, Man, why don't we just do this as an animated movie? And yeah, I'm just astounded every time I watch this that somehow Sony, who has screwed the pooch on multiple occasions, let's be honest here, Spider Man three, not great. They they kind of screwed Sam Raimi. He was writing a Spider-Man 4 while they're also receiving pitches for Amazing Spider-Man. Then they went with Amazing Spider-Man, and that wasn't great. Then Amazing Spider-Man 2 came out, and that made Amazing Spider-Man look better in retrospect because it wasn't Amazing Spider-Man 2. <laughs> that made House Party 1 look like House Party 2. <laughs> Sony did not have a good track record. And at, at this point, even Marvel was like, let's just not do an origin story for Spidey anymore because everyone knows it. They're tired of it. They're sick and tired of Spider-Man having his uncle shot and you know, getting bitten by the radioactive spider. Then here comes Into the Spider-Verse, where we're introduced to multiple Spider-People. We get their origin each time as a fast-forward meta-joke. This whole movie serves as a giant origin for Miles. We see the radioactive spider. We see Uncle Deaths. They basically threw in all the stuff we thought uncle we were Death. sick of and made us love it again. Just through volume. I mean, think about it. This is a world where uncle ben is dying across all timelines <laughs> over and over again just oh 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 better go gunslinger there are other worlds than these <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's really weird to think like as much as i adore homecoming and i like the direction they're taking spider-man under marvel Sony's doing the more interesting stuff with the Spider-Man universe between Venom and Into the Spider-Verse. Like, polar opposite films, but both things you'd never really see from a movie studio that wasn't just throwing it whatever the hell they could at the wall and seeing what sticks and accidentally landing on prestige. The in full fuck it mode. <laughs> Well, that's the thing about this movie. The talent involved here did not accidentally land on anything. This is a remarkably well-scripted movie. It's The voice cast is well-cast. The animation style is groundbreaking. Like, everything here is a risky move, but incredibly well done. And I don't think you hit on all those phases accidentally. It's not like one portion of the movie is good. Everything about the movie is phenomenal. It's, it's stunning. Oh, yeah, this is the kind of production that Disney would have put together in the early 90s. Yeah, everything in this is so unprecedented. It's like, it's really giving 
the creative team total carte blanche to do whatever the hell they want and come up with a real artistic like masterpiece like you don't expect this from a studio no no god and and the fact it only got nominated for best animated picture tragedy it definitely deserves that but boy doesn't it feel like this was one of the best films of the year i'd be hard. it was my number one yeah, I'm hard for us to think of something that's better than this. This is one of the best movies of the last couple of years. This might be my favorite animated film at this point. I think I this would be my fifth time watching it now, and I'm still not sick of it. Like, I want to have every moment of this movie memorized like it's a favorite song. <laughs> yeah, and even disconnected from Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. The script work is, like I said before, so good. Everything works out. There's a lot of moving parts here, but all these characters have real arcs, motivations. Yeah, except for maybe, like, Spider-Ham, you know, the intentionally jokey character who is a cartoon. Even he, still he, gets even he has Dr. Crawdad to battle. <laughs> <laughs> that opening short is phenomenal. If uh, you have the DVD and you haven't watched it yet, you're doing yourself a disservice. It's a couple minutes long, and you're going to love it. You're going to want to watch it before the movie every single time. It's it's might as well be super glued to the film for me. That, that, yeah, that should I just did. always be the opening of the movie. That's, that's the one thing from the uh, – one of the few things from the alternate cut I really do wish they would have stuck with is just have that as the cold open. Yeah. It's so delightful. And ends ominously, which weirdly helps with the <laughs> opening. I think that might have worked if they removed the Peter Parker intro. For some reason, it doesn't seem like it quite gels from Spider-Ham to that. It but... does play a little weird back-to-back, yeah. But there's yeah. a lot in the alternate universe cut that's very um, experimental. Very true. I was mad we didn't get Australian Spider-Man like they promised. <laughs> As for the next movie. Yeah, for anyone at home wondering about Australian Spider-Man, uh, at one point in production, there was going to be one extra Spider-Man in Spider-Verse who is an Australian Spidey, who shows up pretty much to just die violently. Like, he, <laughs> he introduces himself to the other spider people and then explodes because of the molecular destabilization problem that they hint at throughout the rest of the film. He was the Just slip to prove there the was film. a real issue. He was, yeah, the red shirt, the slipknot. Unfortunately, uh, no hints of him remain. That would have been such a dark beat for this film. Oh, look at this. I mean, it's not really subtle, but it's something you could easily miss that the fact it's great expectations. And Miles' whole story revolves around him being afraid to become Spider-Man because he doesn't believe in himself. There's that irony there of the one who needs great expectations for himself is Miles, but he doesn't have it. His parents have it. His uncle has it. And he needs to come to terms with he is a capable person. That's something that's very fascinating about Miles' identity as Spider-Man. He deals with identity issues that Peter never really had to deal with. Like, spy like Peter was Spider-Man. Like it was a an it was a version of himself he created, but it was still very much him. It wasn't anything he had to live up to. And this is that's the amazing thing about Miles existing in both this film and in the comics is you get that legacy character aspect to a Spider-Man that it, to a character that's such a is so de- defined by individualism. 
That's why it's always delightful in any medium to see the Spider-Man mantle treated as a mantle, as a legacy. Uh, the final season of the uh, Disney Ultimate Spider-Man cartoon did that really well. Yeah. And there's something very genius about doing an unconventional superhero legacy story with a main character whose entire shtick is trying to live up to expectations, trying to be the person everyone wants him to be when he has no idea who he is. And when he just as a person, he's a complete mishmash of so many different things. Yeah. And, and to walk back something I said earlier, his uncle thinks miles can handle a lot more, but he doesn't push him towards that stuff the same way his dad does, which I mean, it's pretty evident in the fact that Miles would rather ignore his dad's call and then play hooky, escape school, and hang out with his cool uncle. There's the idea that he's the guy who will let him kind of coast by in comparison to his dad, who was, you know, wants the best for him, just wants to push him towards his potential. And then we realize later on that, no, the uncle's actually a bad guy. But, whoops. It's interesting that this movie takes like Spider-Man, the idea of Spider-Man, and applies it to a state of mind. Yeah. Like, it's a, it's a line that's in all the marketing, but doesn't really make it in the final film, uh, where, where Peter says, what makes you different makes you Spider-Man, and that is such a beautiful encapsulation of what Spider-Man means as a character and a superhero. Um, and it, it works and it's so something well. something to aspire cause... to. Yeah, well, later on, we'll see Miles kind of get hassled by the other spider people because they ask, hey, can you, you know, take a punch? Can you do this? Can you do that? All the Spider-Man things they can all handle, but Miles can't, and they, they treat it like a bad thing, that he's not them. When in the end, because he's different from them, that's his true strength. Yeah. Which is kind of funny. We're dealing with Spider-Men and all the common things in the spider people, all the things that bring them together, but really we're trying to celebrate their differences. And that's such a fascinating take with Spider-Man. Like, again, that character who's defined by being singular and being uh, unconventional, being in a completely different league than any of the, uh, any of the other superheroes. It's, it's almost kind of an X-Men idea. Like, we are united by the fact that we are all in our own way freaks. Mm -hmm. At the very least, this version of Spider-Man can see colors, so he's got that going for him. He's not film nor Spider-Man who can't solve a Rubik's Cube. God, finally, you were seen in a film. <laughs> Is this purple? No. Is this blue? No. But, uh, I'm glad you said that, because that's something I didn't really pick up on until my last rewatch which is something that's very beautiful about this film. Other than the stuff with Miles and how the rest of the group feels towards them, no one's ever really told to be different among the group of spider people. Like Nobody ever tells Spider-Ham to be less cartoony. Nobody ever really comments on Spider-Noir's personality or Penny just being a walking anime character, everyone's allowed to be completely different, and there's 
a mutual respect between them because they're all Spider-Man. It's very early in the commentary for me to wrap the central theme back into my running joke, but would you say <laughs> you do you? That in my head, there's like, like air horns going off and like confetti coming down. Like, oh, he nailed Jesus it. Jesus Christ. There is, like, that's fucking the most alcohol man thing in the world, <laughs> ending the commentary 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I nailed it. I got my point across. Boom. God damn it, alcohol man. Third <laughs> timing. I'm going to pass out now. Um, okay, so this scene here is typically the kind of scene I, I have such a hard time sitting through in a the theater. Like, you just feel awkward. so awkward and embarrassed for miles. But I love the twist here because they're both going through the same scene at the same time. Like, they're, they're both having the exact same problem. Gwen Stacy can't remember her name. She's in a panic. Miles is trying to hit on her, and he's, like, too panicked to quite figure out what he's doing. He's moving in slow motion. And that resolves the entire problem I have of this scene, because instead of feeling self-conscious, you realize neither one is really aware of the other. They are too wrapped up with their own problems. Oh, it's amazing watching this scene both ways. <clears throat> Paying attention to one or the other. Yeah, it's it's very strange. Instead of one just being a kind of straight person for the joke, they're they're both essentially, you know, characters with the agency moving through the scene. It's like for a second, the scriptwriters forgot that there is one protagonist or main character and wrote this as an ensemble piece, which I mean, it truly is, even though we're introduced to Miles first and he's kind of our POV character for the film. And it's such a great uh, seeding of whenever we see things from Gwen's point of view later on and really enforces the idea that each one of these characters is the protagonist of their own personal Spider-Man movie that just yeah. happens to be crossing over. But it's really the... impressive to me that through all of these different characters, being kind of a team movie, it never actually feels like a team movie. It's always they're there to center around Miles and prop up the to enhance Miles's arc, either through a theme or as just added support. The it, it, the focus never moves off of Miles, despite how large the cast grows. That's that's really the miracle of this film. Like, how is it totally a Spider-Verse movie while also just being a straight Miles Morales origin story? It's one of those things I would have just assumed would be impossible if I hadn't have seen this first. So to, to point out something we already missed, so you'll have to rewind for a second. When Miles enters this room, the camera switches over to his POV, and you actually see the camera scan left to right, then quickly zoom in on what he's looking at, the laptop. And it's a great example of how the camera is very fluid in this film. It's, it's not just like a static, and eh, we plopped it down, put cool animation in front of it. The camera is doing a lot of really neat, fluid things this entire film. Like this scene where it turns around the corner to center itself around Miles as he walks along buildings. So many neat little touches, and they fully use the fact that this is a fake camera in a digital landscape that can do anything it wants. But they get around it looking too artificial by adding all sorts of little camera wobbles and yeah. hesitations. There, there's a lot of humanity added to the camera movements you wouldn't necessarily notice unless you're watching it directly to see how the frame is changing. 
I, I, I don't know if you have a traditional cinematographer in a project like this, or if it's all down to the animator choosing where the camera goes. I'm sure there's some sort of specialty position in animation to decide what the actual output of the scene comes in as. But who, whoever made those decisions did just an absolutely fantastic, brilliant job. Oh, it's like the one little bit we just passed when Miles falls in through the window. There's, um, if you notice, he falls before the camera pans down. Yes. Like, it simulates human error of just being off timing-wise. him. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like the camera moved down and then he fell, or matched him as he fell. It's like, oh, shit, hold on. But it'll still, in the action scenes, allow us to do some kind of stuff we couldn't easily get with a normal camera. And it's it's easy to ignore this now, because in so many action films, the CGI basically guides the camera anyways, and you're just existing within a CGI frame. Yeah. But in here, it feels more natural, and all the cool stuff the camera does really nails the action and brings it home. Later on, when the Prowler chases after Miles, and he starts jumping between crashing cars and motorcycles, the camera can get right in there and show everything in slow motion. And it doesn't feel like you're making a jump into an action scene. It just feels like the camera is giving you a little extra at that moment. This is the only movie, uh, Spider-Man movie, that's captured what Spider-Man comic book panels are like. Like, Spider-Man's oh, yeah. plane of POV is completely different than most characters. Y you know, it's the a panel can be upside down one second, and then the next panel is... Uh, tilted the uh, in the opposite direction and then flips around a 360 and this is the only film that captures uh, that pov of spider-man of flipping around and constantly uh, changing perspectives it's almost um it reminds me a lot of um mcfarland's perspective uh whenever he was drawing spider-man like everything was based around how spider-man moves uh whenever yeah. he was drawing the character and every angle was predicated on that. Oh, very, very much so. I was actually going to say that Spider-Verse is to showing Spider-Man in film, like what McFarlane going on to the Spider-Man books was to those comics. Yeah. Like, like it's like, oh, someone's actually using this medium for Spider-Man instead of making Spider-Man bend to the medium. Exactly. And, and as long as we're talking kind of comic book relation, to me, every time we get like a glitch scene or they do something a little extra with the animation, it, it really jumps out to me almost like it's an insert panel from uh, Tom King's Mr. Miracle series that just oh, came out. Oh, very much so. Like it's That's a much think of the Jared's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that was being made pretty much the same time as this, so it wasn't like they we're inspiring each other but boy is it is it cool to see something like that brought to live action also who would have guessed we'd ever get ultimate goblin on screen <laughs> the most extreme version of ultimate goblin too who still get, has the cap yeah it's we get a spider-man story <laughs> that is not centered between the relationship of green goblin and spider-man like all of them want to build on that they all want to be spider-man and green goblin arch nemesis's It'd be like if you just had Joker in a Batman movie, but you didn't give a shit about him being, like, the one true nemesis. It's so well, odd. That's what I love about the amazing code switching in this movie. Like, in the first act, you kill off Spider-Man and the Green Goblin. And you have all of the Spider-Man crime villains fill that void. 
with surprise reveal Dr. Octopus leading the show. Like, it is so unique for a Spider-Man story. Yeah, and as long as we're talking villains, if you think about most superhero stories, the, the original villain in the origin story has to be tied to the hero. Like, one created the other. And in, in this case, that's not really it. Miles... I mean, he gets bitten by a radioactive spider and gets his powers, but it's not directly correlated to Kingpin in the same way, I think. And it's not like because Miles has power, Kingpin is after him to try and steal that for his own set of powers. It's it's not a Spider-Man Green Goblin situation. Or like a Joker-Batman situation. It doesn't really feel like that. These are just incidental. This is a villain that happens to get in Miles' way. But yeah, there's Miles. a lot of foils to the guy as well. I mean, if you look at Kingpin's design, he is a giant floating black hole. Like, he's intimidating every time you see him he fills the frame up and a lot of times when the frame's on him he's just this black amorphous blob with a face and miles is always something very small and scared in comparison i kind of like the visual language there they use to illustrate that kingpin owns the frame miles is kind of almost hidden in it at least for the first part of the film yeah miles's thing is uh, in many ways powerlessness ness um you know, in his own life, everyone else is kind of controlling what he what he should be doing, what he can be doing, um, while he has really no idea. And the big moment, and it's, it's very subtle in the film, and a bigger moment in Miles' comic book origin, but the fact he, he watches Spider-Man die while he has powers. Miles feels like he should have done something but you know at, yeah. at the end of the day he's just a kid even though he had superpowers he couldn't actually do anything in that moment but well, I, it's it's guilt that is a feeling central yeah yeah guilt is like the defining characteristic of spider-man there's always guilt there's always someone they should have saved and they didn't and it doesn't matter if they could or couldn't have actually saved them in reality they feel like they should have which is a clever twist in my mind here because you think the uncle ben in miles story is going to be the actual spider-man and it turns out, no, he has a dead uncle, too. We're just saving that as a surprise for later. <laughs> and as long as we're talking about dead uncles, how the fuck did they make Prowler cool? <laughs> I know. Fucking King Prowler, the greatest villain of them all. Prowler in this movie puts a lot of other main villains to shame. Like, he's intimidating, he seems extremely competent, he's fun to watch. He's he has got the a coolest stinger theme. like he's the Joker. <laughs> yes, I want to take a second to talk about the singer. I was going to talk about it when it was on screen, but eh. Uh, boy, Daniel Pemberton's score is really something else. I love it, but particularly I love what he's done for Prowler. There's this kind of electronic elephant roar that happens each time the Prowler appears, and it's terrifying. It's, it's like something you would expect to hear before Michael Myers shows up and stabs you to death on Halloween. I love it. Also, if I ever heard that music while I was driving like a moped down the street, I would just <laughs> crash that moped because I would assume I was about to die. I would just shit my pants there and be done with it. It's amazing how that's just an elephant roar, too. Like It seems like it would be like a composite of things, like the TIE fighter squeal, but no, it's just an elephant. Yeah. Never been, like uh, a filter over it. Um, he he's posted a lot of stuff on Twitter of him of like how he put together uh, pieces of music, and really it it extends past just the orchestral stuff. Um, one of the most uh, fascinating ways he uses music to to both tell the story and enhance the story is 
um, is what's up danger because it's not the the studio version of the song what he did is he took he took the song he took what up danger then layered underneath it kind of miles's theme that plays kind of for miles um for his uncle uh for his father like various different moments and he also took kind of the main heroic spider-man theme that plays throughout and he layered all three of them together into one song and it's um a great melding i think of what miles's arc is of him finding what like what spider-man he is where he's like his heroic becoming spider-man moment isn't everyone else's theme playing like everybody kind of gets their own theme but he doesn't get the main spider-man theme he doesn't quite get the miles theme he gets the music he listens to then his Miles theme, and then the Spider-Man theme all meld together to create something completely new. That's a, that's an amazing detail I didn't know about before. The the thing I thought was just more fun, cool, like, hey, he took the orchestral score and put it on a, a, a turntable so he could remix it like an old school, you know, DJ. That's fun. <laughs> but yours, yours cool. carries a little more weight. <laughs> well, my favorite also, thing about about that is you also get the boom of the heroic prowler sting yeah which tells you so much like in terms of like just movie storytelling that's such a cool idea for miles as like the version of spider-man that he is that doesn't that is pretty much an invention of the movie because they don't really play with that in the bendis comics which is the idea of miles as carrying on both the legacy of Spider-Man and the Prowler and those two influences being inside of him and influencing the way he's Spider-Man. That's such an interesting idea for a legacy character. So do you guys think it was an intentional meta joke that essentially the perfect Peter Parker is voiced by Chris Pine, the guy from the DC movies? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like him being Steve Trevor didn't play into it. They were just like, ha- we have to get the most perfect man who has ever existed. The <laughs> Spider-Man has to fuck, guys. <laughs> I really enjoy, though, that for once we got a perfect Spider-Man. Like a Spider-Man yeah. who has his shit together. And naturally the movie goes, no, this man must die. Like, we're... In my mind, some of the core tenets of Spider-Man are, one, he's always wrecked with guilt. He feels guilty about everything. Two, everything in his life should go wrong. Like, he should always not have enough money. He should always kind of be on the outs with his girlfriend. His landlord should probably hate him, and someone makes him cookies occasionally that he's, you know, appreciative of. That's Spider-Man in my mind. Like, he he just is always a little down in his luck. And to see a Spider-Man who has it all figured out is such a weird thing to me. Yeah, seeing him as essentially Dan Slott, Parker Industries, Peter. I realized something. Many kind costumes. Of, yeah, I, I realized something about because the whole perfect Spider-Man thing was like kind of it didn't throw me at all, but it was um, so unique to just this. Like, wow, this is Spider-Man just as Superman. Like, even in the Raimi movies where he's the only hero that exists, like everyone still shits on him. Exactly. So, yeah. and, so, and Tobey Maguire still fucks things up constantly. 
Yeah, and I realized why the Spider-Man from Miles' universe is like this ultimate perfect version of Spider-Man. And it's because Miles' universe, and it's it kind of exemplified through that opening um, when Peter's introducing himself, is this is... This world is what Spider-Man means to the real world as a cultural figure. Kind of so like, it's, like it's it's Spider-Man through the eyes of Miles. Exactly. Like the the joke about the ice cream uh fucking cone thing. It's like of course referencing a real thing, but also the fact that that thing actually kind of has meaning to us for both uh, you know, history from when we were kids or just in the zeitgeist, just the fact it has Spider-Man on it. Like, Spider-Man actually means something to the zeitgeist. It's it's like Superman's S or or the ba- or Batman. Like, Spider-Man really ha- is a, as a cultural touchstone, especially unlike many other characters, I think, because um, he's very down to He's very humanistic uh, for many people, uh, particularly particularly children. So he's so Miles as Spider Man is kind of what Spider Man is in our heads. Like when we get excited that a new Spider Man thing is coming out, like that's the Spider Man that exists for Miles to then have to live up to the legacy of. Yeah, and if you're stepping outside the movie, that makes perfect sense because they're they're trying to introduce to audiences. A new Spider-Man, which to comics readers, you know, not, not a big deal. But for general audiences who don't read comic books, holy shit, that's like, okay, it's been 60 years and they want to just tell us there's a new Spider-Man. Why should we accept that? And I, I like the idea of saying, okay, well, that was like the perfect Spider-Man is the idea we've grown accustomed to in our reality. What if we accepted this new Spider-Man? And I've overrun what might be the finest Stanley cameo. <laughs> I love the fact that that is both as cheesy funny as a Stan Lee cameo should be, but also surprisingly touching. Like, it always fits, eventually. It's it's a great Stan Lee way to, you know, phrase becoming a superhero. Yeah. And it ends with a sleazy Stan joke, so it's perfect. It really is perfect. And it's a perfect moment. Just to top that off, we get Stan Lee one more time later on just being a real heel. So it's <laughs> it's a great way to pay respect to Stan. There's, there's also the very nice little uh, interstitial at the very, very end. It's going to be so weird after Endgame, where we, we no longer have Stanley popping up in every movie. Yeah. There's something fascinating about the fact that Endgame is going to be the last. Like, that really isn't the end of an era. God, I hope they make it as morbid as possible. Like, everyone gets unsnapped, except for Stanley. <laughs> no, Cody. Everyone's undusted, and Stan's like, hey, what about me? Excelsior. And that's actually the secret. Like, he's the one who dies to save the Marvel Universe. <laughs> That's even worse. He's in the Soul Stone by himself, just looking around. What did it cost you? <laughs> and also, a little bit of a uh, callback to Sam Raimi's, Raimi's Spider-Man, where Peter really goes for it. Like, he gets on the rooftop, and he just goes for this thing, which to most sane people would be like, nope, nope, definitely don't want to do that. That looks like I'll die. <laughs> And here we get a little bit of slapstick to kind of soften that blow. 
Just Miles being haunted by the number 42 like he's Jim Carrey. <laughs> What's it mean? What's it mean? It's it's great how many Spider-Man like, cultural things this movie harkens back to constantly. I, I, we kind of touched on it earlier that everyone was kind of sick of Spider-Man stuff in a lot of ways. That's why Homecoming swung so widely in the in the opposite direction for a lot of mainstays. And then Spider-Verse kind of reminded you how much you, you actually enjoyed all this by just cramming as much Spider-Man stuff you were kind of sick of into one film. Is it kind of, it, it, Spider-Verse seemed to remind all of us that all of those things are like important to us, that they kind of transcend just a simple story. Plus, with Spider-Man, it's in a weird spot for me, because in the old, old comics, there was this idea that he was a normal kid, just like you and me, but now he has superpowers, and he lives in a real city. You know, that opposite of what you had going on with the DC heroes, where he's supposed to be kind of realistic. But on a day-to-day basis, he fought Hydro-Man or Sandman or the Vulture, you know, these larger-than-life comic heroes. So you have this unreal mixed in with the realism of day-to-day life and he was trying to have both ways and it it honestly worked whereas in the movies sam raimi decided like the only way he could get this to work was to play up the campiness of the stories and i don't want to knock sam raimi's first two spider-man movies i think they're fantastic all around but then the mcu gets spider-man and they have to kind of fit it into all the other semi-realistic superheroes like you, you can't have something as ridiculous as scorpion just wearing like a giant green leotard with a giant robot tail. I like the I like the MCU movies, but they they have to kind of soften the blow, I think, of some of the comic books. Whereas with this film being animated in such a wild fashion as this, they can really get away with what they want. They can make this movie sincere, but they can make it extreme. They can make it realistic, but highly animated and exaggerated. They can do all sorts of weird things that wouldn't necessarily work in live action, but play perfectly in in animation yeah you have to be very choosy with when you choose to play spider-man as myth because it's a character you can like much like batman it's a character you can do both ways but which side you fall on has to be specific to that specific project or else it's just going to be a disaster but even look at the example they just gave us in the movie. Peter is watching seahorses on TV, and his eyes widen in the mask. And that's something they've tried to give us with the MCU Spidey, but they have to do it in a semi-realistic way where there's, like, robot lenses that can narrow or open. And they can't go as crazy exaggerated as they can in an animated film like this or in the comic book where they can really redraw the face however they want to get across the motion. In this format, they're free to really play with those things and not have to take the mask off Spider-Man so you understand that Spidey is making, you know, a wacky face. Yeah, it's amazing how expressive they were able to make each of the individual masks. Even Noir, who just has goggles. (laughs) Also, I just want to point out that we just saw Spider-Man crying in a bathtub because Aunt May died and his wife left him. Seems like Spider-Man to me. That, 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 that's in a family movie. 
so you want to just freeze frame the movie right here and just look at all the weird things going on in the background. <laughs> I believe there was a poster for a Seth Rogen movie called Hold Your Horses with Seth Rogen as a giant jockey man. I like uh, Evil Oh he- Hello that's in there. <laughs> There's a lot of great stuff happening. All of a sudden, like Coca-Cola becomes something different. Like everything is slightly off, so you know it's not our reality, but it's inspired. My favorite love... stuff from Dust Till Sean. <laughs> <laughs> I love how because of Stephen King and him using Nozala as the uh, signifier for which books are in canon and which aren't uh like soft drinks have just become the alternate universe calling card <laughs> for so many writers i mean it all serves the beam so what's it matter in the end <laughs> this really is the dark tower of spider-man movies which is a thing i never assumed would happen <laughs> it really is isn't it <laughs> going back to what the movies don't want to show us anymore god damn do i love this swinging scene it's. I understand why the MCU was getting away from the big operatic, Sam Raimi inspired, Spidey swings through New York majestically scenes, but they're one of the main appeals of Spider-Man in my mind. You want to see Spider-Man make those McFarlane poses in the middle of the city, and having the MCU version not really get into web swinging as much is kind of sad. I miss him. So in this film, even though it's a comedy scene, to see Miles. Beating the goddamn living hell out of <laughs> Peter bastard. B. Parker. It's delightful. I, I just love everything about this. And again, it's just uh, using the medium for Spider-Man. <laughs> I love that line. Dragging a homeless corpse behind. <laughs> <laughs> just the darkness of Spider-Man with a, just a hobo corpse on a string he's dragging through the city grinding into dust on the pavement specifically a young boy in a homemade spider-man costume <laughs> it's a little boy uh this movie uh it works as an God action it. film it works as a, a comedy it works in like 10 different directions i, I love that that bit there maybe you can go around <laughs> if you wanted this could just be pure comedy you could cut out all the action bits and you'd still be left with a very good movie well, i think that's what makes this truly great there are so many different parts moving at the same time that all like blend together perfectly but you could cut any of them out and expand it as a own thing and you'd still have an incredible movie like you could edit all of the superhero stuff out of miles's story and that would still be fascinating like miles is just a kid from a multi-ethnic household who won a school lottery and has to go to a private school where he doesn't fit in like that's a movie that would star lawrence fishburne in the 90s Lawrence Fishburne wasn't, like, little kid style in the 90s. He would have been Jefferson. He was in Boys in the Hood. I'm thinking, like, 99 was Matrix, Lawrence Fishburne. Talking early 90s. All right, all right. Back when he was still cutting his teeth as Larry Fishburne. 
before he watched Sam Neill go mad in space and realized <laughs> there had to be another way. <laughs> uh, so, and, go on. I was going to say, like, uh, in expanding on that idea, like, you could do an entire spinoff movie about any of these characters. Oh, you yeah. could do just a straight Miles movie. That's the interesting thing about watching the alternate cut and seeing the original version of this movie, which was just a straight Ultimate Spider-Man adaptation until th the end of the first hour when when Peter would have came in. I mean, any one of these characters, really, if they could do, like, a side quill and be fine, they could do this movie again from the point of Spider-Ham and just focus on him. I'd still be all for it. It would be totally cool to see five different sequels of this movie that are just this movie from two shops over. There's my Prowler spinoff. I'll take that, too. But you'd be Parker, it's... you could do an entire, like, prestige graphic novel on. Like, it's one of the greatest, like, look-ats of, of Peter Parker that I think there's ever been. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is something I thought was really fascinating in the choice to, to portray Spider-Man like this, because what we're getting in this movie is essentially a much, much more pared-down version of Peter in Earth-X and Spider-Man Reign. In Spider-Man Reign's case, an extremely <laughs> pared-down version. If only, though. Yeah. If only. Just Peter getting fired from a flower shop because he can't stop crying over his dead wife. <laughs> My god, every time I made love to her, I put that poison into her. <laughs> But I find it fascinating that, like, it never really gets discussed, and it wasn't intentional, but that's essentially become Peter's Dark Knight Returns. Like, it's just, uh, it's just established that that's Spider-Man's doomsday scenario. If Peter loses his family, he's not Peter Parker anymore, and without Peter Parker, there is no Spider-Man. Like the worst thing that ha can happen to him is he loses MJ or Aunt May and just becomes a flabby self-parody of himself who cries all the time. That's, that's something very specific to Spider-Man that this movie focuses in on and definitely seems to understand. It's like, what defines Spider-Man is that he has no idea who he is if he's not taking care of somebody. Yeah. Like, it's like Batman and like Batman's drive to fight chaos. Like Peter can run from responsibility from responsibility all he wants, but at the end of the day, he's addicted to it. Like that's his fucking uh, the rain on my chest is a baptism. I'm glad you mentioned the fact that Peter can run from stuff, but it comes back in the end because, uh, as we see here, pretty much all the Spider-Men are running from something. I mean, here Miles is running from his own excellence. Uh, Peter B. Parker is really running from his, his fear of starting a family. And to that end, he doesn't want to mentor Miles because that's the extension of, you know, screwing up a kid. Although in the end, they realize they have to embrace all this stuff and they're better off for it. It's confronting fear. I do want to mention, too, what a weird but interesting structure this film has because they're interest, uh, interesting. They're uh, adding characters as the movie goes on, which is very odd to me. Typically, you think, like, hey, you know your principal cast, 
pretty much at the end of Act 1. We were about 40 minutes in when they introduced Peter B. Parker. And, you know, we still got another, what, 15 minutes after that? Basically the end of this action beat before they introduced Spider-Gwen. And then the movie goes on for another half hour or something like that before we get the entire Spider-Crew. So they, they keep kind of upping the stakes of the story by building and building and building the cast of this movie out. It's it's an interesting take that you really wouldn't see very often. You know, can you think of an ensemble movie where the ensemble grows throughout the entire thing instead of shrinking? Imagine like, of Oz. Yeah, like Ocean's 12, if like they started with three characters and then, you know, at the 45 minute mark, they're like, oh, we need three more. And then, you know, 45 minutes after that, and here's the rest of the number. <laughs> Or in The Hobbit, if they introduce all the dwarves at, like, the end of the first movie. It's like a Final Fantasy game. <laughs> it's it's a weird move that easily could backfire, because how do you add those characters and make people care about them, and not just make them be one note? And kind of the brilliant thing here is, you embrace the fact that they're characters and they're one note. You can, you can build off those stereotypes to use that as a shortcut in your development. Spider-Ham is... A cartoon, literally a cartoon. So it's okay to build off of that. You don't need to know too much more. I think it makes sense that they introduce all the the primary characters a little bit earlier to give them a little more time to flesh themselves out. I think it's very well balanced. And the secondary spider people benefit from being so broad, like you said. Like, anime, cartoon, detective man. Okay, we've cut (laughs) it. That's it. You get a grasp on those characters pretty much immediately, and then they can fill them out with more personality just from the voice cast. And it, it just astonishes me that, no, this movie didn't make up any of those. Like, <laughs> Spider-Man noir is a big deal in the Marvel <laughs> Spider-Ham has been around since, like, what, the, like, 70s? Early 80s, I think. I think 82 or something? There's someone right now listening to this commentary. He's like, you idiot. Spider Screaming at me. I don't care, person. I don't care. I know I'm wrong about everything. I will say this (laughs) film's version of uh, Penny is um, an improvement, I think. Oh, yeah. Definitely the best version of uh, Spider, I think, who's just creepy robot (laughs) Spider-Man in the comic. I'm frantically Googling right now trying to figure out where the fuck the Spider-Ham introduction was. 1983. There we go. Oh, I was only off by one year. He first appeared in the one-shot comic book Marvel Tales starring Peter Porker. Tales spelled like T-A-I-L-S. Peter Porker, the Spectacular Spider-Ham, November 1983. Which was then immediately followed by ongoing bi-monthly series Peter Porker, the Spectacular Spider-Ham. Under the Star Comics imprint. What I want to know is where's my goddamn Captain Carrot movie? Release the <laughs> I, zoo crew. I think about that Just a lot, honestly. I legitimately no. think about that a lot. Um, we passed it, but one of my favorite little bits about like how intently, um, writing wise and direction wise, they pay attention to character. I love how we've seen Miles sing Sunflower twice in this movie. And it's very clear he doesn't really know the words to the song, <laughs> but he still sings it anyway. And I love that so fucking much. And partially because the song wasn't done whenever they were <laughs> <laughs> just had a beat. There's a lot to love in this particular scene. Uh, Peter B. Parker actually being 
pretty good at certain things. Like, he memorized that password instantly. Uh, it's it's nice they didn't just show him as a screw-up. There there's redeeming features to the guy. He's a he's yeah, legitimately Spider-Man. the flashes of what makes him a good Spider-Man. He's just down his luck at the moment. Yeah, this is the scene that really hammers home, like, oh, he actually is Spider-Man. He's just old. Yeah, he's just not doing the best at his job right now because he's uh, Peter Parker. And uh, to spoil it, I guess, for the folks who are some reason listening to us instead of watching the movie for the first time, which that's insane. Don't do that. The Doc Ock reveal is such a fun twist. Completely floored me in the theaters. I had no idea it was about to happen. Wow, you just spoiled it for people like 10 seconds early. That was I so know, super I know. Uh, wow. going, You're the real Lady Octopus. I didn't mention anything about spoiling Prowler, but this, this I draw the line. <laughs> <laughs> I do love how Peter figures it out, like, right before the reveal. Mm. <laughs> but it's, it's a great redesign of the character, because we're all very familiar so with much. Doc Ock from Spider-Man 2. And instead of going with Molina's, like, noble scientist who has become possessed by science, this is someone who is just bad. This is just comic book Dr. Octopus as a lady. Yeah. A much younger lady. And, and the redesign, too. I, I love that. There's the, all those visual so twists on what you expect from the villains. Instead of giant metal arms, we had these odd inflatable plastic tubes. I like the silicone. Yeah, really the so cool. Look, look. Yeah, and the her jumpsuit is such an interesting take on the ultimate, uh, Doctor Octopus costume that uh, silver and green onesie he had. It's really great to see that like finally in a movie. She's always one of his better looks. Also, keeping with the the custom of Doc Ock having weird haircuts, like instead of the fishbowl thing that classic Doc has, we have a beehive. Like a messy science beehive. That's that has multicolored streaks because she's a kook. <laughs> what I love about that is that does totally track. If Otto were female, he'd be Miss Frizzle. Oh yeah. Also, can also, I say how much I I love the one scientist just getting one last sip of the coffee? <laughs> There's so many great details here. When oh, the, my one favorite scientist gets is hit with the bagel. It's a bagel. bagel. <laughs> Get up, the bagel. The, immediately the scientists see spider-man and all jump in action like they have laser guns and stuff like they're ready for this and uh, also we're way past the point here but i have to bring it up everyone is aware of this joke but kudos and hats off to whoever wrote the monitor joke in this movie <laughs> <laughs> it's just absolutely perfect the best joke in this whole thing I would like to take this moment to just say, like, as an official statement from Box Office Pulp, can all CGI movies be animated in twos from now on? Right. <laughs> that looks so dynamic with that faux oh, stop-motion yeah. look. It gives it so much life. It reminds me, more than anything, of the squiggle vision that Dr. Katz and home movies used yeah. whenever on the air. Like, it just... It makes even still images feel dynamic. For some reason, I, I just stuck in my head right now. Boy, wouldn't it be cool if we got a Samurai Jack movie in this style? Oh, God. Like, Samurai Jack already has a very distinct, cool style. But but something about that last season seems like, boy, it could apply to this, too. 
like just having that extra dimension in there would make it feel a little bit more alive than it already does. God, if Tartakovsky ever got around to making that Popeye movie, I would love to see it in this style, animated in twos. That would look so unique. It'd be perfect for an adaptation of an old Fleischer cartoon. Oh, God, that'd be cool. It's it's funny, because just remember, the trailer came out, and I think everyone's reaction to this was, um, I might need a minute. Like, people were kind of worried, like, they didn't quite know what to make of the kind of herky-jerk look of the animation. But, boy, by the time the movie hit, I, I know I was 100% sold. Like, it well, only took a minute for me like to be this. like, yes, this is good. Or also, uh, I know some people still don't like this, but for me it works. A lot of the times in the background, they'll do an imitation of kind of stereoscopic view, like you know, like an out of frame three D look. You can see they'll the backgrounds the are blurred, too. doubled. Yeah, yeah, you can see it all over. It gives this idea that there's dimension even when it's a two D animation. And yeah, some folks I think it bothers because like, what is what is happening here? This just looks like crazy, weird, pointless animation, but. Again, this movie, has, it feels like I'm watching in 3D every time I watch it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, I didn't realize until after, long after watching it that was done to replicate bad printing in old comics. Oh, really? Uh, that was the reason they went for it? Yep. Everything <laughs> in this is meant to repl- replicate comic book colors and comic book coloring specifically. I did love on the commentary how they had to keep mentioning the Kirby Crackle. Like, they're just so excited to see it every time it was on screen. <laughs> Seeing Kirby, Kirby Crackle in a movie is incredible. As is a Robbie Rodriguez Spider-Gwen cover animated. That thing I would have assumed wasn't possible. <laughs> yeah, another how, thing you wouldn't think would be possible. We get Spider-Gwen in a movie. Yes. And in my mind, every time Gwen is in a film... It's just a cheap setup. Like, oh, she's going to get killed by a Green Goblin. Spider-Man will feel bad because he caused her death inadvertently. <coughs> and and that's her storyline. It's amazing we got Gwen as a full-fledged character. That completely circumvents even mentioning that. The closest we get is, in her universe, Peter Parker dies. Yeah, there's something very, like, almost triumphant about the fact that the story of Gwen Stacy as a pop culture character has completely changed in, like, five years. Yeah. I mean, from this, people are so excited about Spider-Gwen, I wouldn't be surprised if that character eventually just gets her very own spinoff movie, a live-action one. Like, she was definitely a standout of the movie, so that's... Definitely like, in the spinoff animated movie. Yeah, and while... Uh... Jason Latour and Robbie Rodriguez's run is relatively short. There is so much in that short run and so many interesting ideas. You could play with that forever. Like, you could do an entire movie of just exploring the Spider-Gwen universe where Matt Murdock is the kingpin of crime. And there's a black female Bucky Barnes as Captain America. (laughs) And her clone is Falcon, a sharpshooter. I, I enjoy, too, that the movie essentially fits all of King's stories and... Ah, King's story. Kingpin's necessary backstory into about a 20-second flashback. That's all we need to see, and we get it. Like, oh, he's a bad guy, but in this case, he has a very misguided but pure motivation. He just wants to see his family again and, you know, 
he just cares about people, actually. It's humanizing, but also you realize, like, no, he's evil, so he and, shouldn't get what he wants. And it still plays into the themes. It's, it's first pining for family. Yeah. Pining for family and also rejecting his own identity. Yeah. Think and rejecting how... his culpability oh, yeah. in what happened, which definitely fits in with the themes of responsibility and identity that Miles and Peter represent. Oh, so well just think movie. of how many other superhero movies have villains that don't quite click and you don't understand why they're doing it. And this movie somehow gets around that entirely in a 20-second flashback. That's good. The right. Sinkevich panels help. <laughs> yeah, it, it it's made me so happy as a fan over the past few years to see the Kingpin become a big pop culture villain. And and not only that, but to be recognized as one of the deep comic book villains. Like, he's kind of on on par with the Joker at this point as being the villain you go to when you want to bring humanity to your superhero story. R.I.P. Daredevil. You were the best of us. Blind bastard. I also love how, because of the first season of the Daredevil TV show, the Kingpin just has a black suit now. <laughs> like between this, the Insomniac game, Daredevil, the comics, <laughs> they completely flipped the script on that. Ah, Lily Tomlin is Aunt May. I'm impressed with how subtle they play a lot of stuff with uh, Peter B. Parker, like meeting Aunt May when when his his aunt died, where there's a reaction, but it's all really just played in animation acting. Like it, it yeah, never becomes a it. bigger thing. Yeah. Also, can you think of a supporting character that is as malleable as Aunt May? No. Think, of, think of the difference of Aunt May in the Raimi movies versus the Aunt May from Amazing Spider-Man against uh, the 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 young hot Aunt May from uh, the MCU Spider-Man. What a weird range of very, very different people we've gotten to represent yeah. that character. Now compare that to the Aunt May who's Howard the Duck's Girl Friday. <laughs> And this Aunt May, who is like an all-action, super-competent Aunt May, like, why doesn't she just have a super suit? <sighs> why doesn't she become golden oldie? <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Aunt May is oddly more malleable than Alfred. It's kind of a weird thought. I don't know. Anytime it's an Alfred who is not an exact clone of Batman the Animated Series Alfred, I go, this is bullshit. <laughs> Get out <laughs> of here, Michael Caine. <laughs> So I love the what-if wizard cape there. as a fucking deep cut if I ever saw one. That Miles immediately gravitates towards in the last scene he was told no capes. <laughs> so in this seeing, universe, the perfect Spider-Man had a cape. Seeing Del Otto's Secret War Spider-Man costume in a movie, is like in a theater, was one of the most surreal <laughs> experiences. Also, hey, the Rose. I really wish they'd use the spider buggy that they passed by on the way down. I guess there's it always just, the sequel. It just becomes the third act of Lego Batman. I want to know what the rose means there. Like, did Richard survive, like, horribly scarred? Now he's a rival. <laughs> like, there are such implications there. I also like how that's not the first time 
like in that year that spider that that hammerhead was on a crime board. Oh, <laughs> uh, and here we go. We finally have the full cast. Yeah, I would give anything to see a Penny Parker movie in that style. Could you imagine? Oh no, she even has it's her a, own theme. It's a little sad because of all the characters, I think Penny Parker really gets the short end of the stick compared to yeah. all the other characters. Like, there's definitely stuff to do there, but they, they just don't have enough room no to go around time. and get everybody. Yeah. Yeah, she does technically get more content uh, character-wise than any of the other B Spider-Mans. Just uh, Nicolas out Cage. Nicolas Cage <laughs> being told to go full Nicolas Cage in the recording booth really just sells it. I, I love the fact he has the awareness to go, oh, you don't want subdued Cage, you want the full Cage. Also, the disappointment here when the match doesn't burn down to his fingertips. Oh. oh. <laughs> or John Mulaney, who is one of my favorite comics, so it was, it was a treat to have him in here. But what a great fit for that character, that distinct cadence and voice. It's I in... love how it's not even Mulaney doing a voice. That's just how Mike, how John Mulaney talks. <laughs> Did you guys see uh, he was on one of the late night shows and he was talking about... Uh, when he's recording his lines, they told him to have fun with it. So he started improving, and he didn't oh, know what the yeah. rating was. So all of his lines were like, get him, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Go fuck him up. And like he did that for about five minutes before he was like, hey, what's this rated? Oh, PG. So you can't use any of this. I like how he was like Paul Bettany recording as Jarvis. Like he had no idea what the <laughs> fuck this was going to be in. Well, uh, apparently they kept the script pretty much under lock. They wouldn't tell him exactly what was going on until he was cast. Which I'm not sure, like, if, if Paul... Or Paul Bettany. Now I'm talking about Vision for some reason. It, just imagine John Mulaney come out there and been like, there's a Spider-Ham in this movie. People would have been very confused. I don't even know if that would have been like, well, now we can't see it. Spider-Ham's in it. We already know how it plays out. It's I like funny. the idea of Spider-Ham being kept under lock and key, like he's a fucking final act reveal villain. <laughs> It's fucking incredible to me that anything didn't leak about this. Like, we only discovered information about this movie when they wanted us to, when they slowly revealed things through several trailers. And there's so much misdirection in those trailers, too. Like, the fact that Miles' universe has a Spider-Man already. Oh, yeah. I didn't know really anything going into this. I was surprised that Chris Pine was voicing perfect Spider-Man. Uh, that there was going to be, like, Nicolas Cage doing extra shit in here. There there was so much that just surprised me. Prowler I didn't know was in the movie at all. I didn't realize that Kingpin was the villain. How the hell did I watch all those trailers and not know who the bad guy was? That is weird. I don't even think they... Did they show Doc? No, they didn't show Doc Ock at all in the trailers. No. They kept that no. surprise, too. Who the hell they show as the villain in the trailers? Kingpin Anyone? is featured very prominently, as right. is Prowler. All right. You were just drunk at the time, Cody. I, uh, for once, Those I was are the only characters spoilers. they, like, announce, like, oh, you know, Lee Schreiber's playing Kingpin, you know, Marshall Ali is playing Prowler. It's like, okay, so it's a very standard, uh, Miles movie. Because they had different, they took scenes from the movie and then animated them differently, like, Miles is in full costume at the grave of Peter Parker, and yeah. they... they animated scenes just for the trailer of someone mysterious is behind Peter when uh, behind Miles whenever he's standing at the grave but you don't really know what the hell that means so to, this this connects back to a point I made much earlier in the commentary 
where Miles is basically being bullied by all the other spider people to be more like them. And they said, well, he's still a kid and he's not ready yet. He's got potential, but he's not us. And the big point of the movie here is, well, he shouldn't turn out to be just like you. He's Miles. He's his own guy. And in the end, him embracing the fact that he isn't just a Spider-Man, he's this type of Spider-Man, is what saves everyone's bacon, if you'll excuse the Spider-Ham pun. Thank you, thank you. The trick for the Spidey shooter is three cherries. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Cody. You're welcome. But, uh, what I like the specific way that's played, though, where it's not even necessarily them goading him into being like them. It's just them desperately trying to see what his thing is. Yeah. Like, what's the thing Miles special? Which is the thing Miles is trying to figure out the entire movie. Like, what the hell is it that makes him special? Oh. Like, like his father tells him, he has a spark inside of him, but it's up to him to decide what the hell he does with it. But I think each character goes at it from a misguided route where, you know, Spider-Nor is a really good guy at punching. So he's punching Spider-Man going, can you take a punch? Can you give a punch? In his mind, that's how you become a hero. That's like the characteristic you need, that physical capability. With Miles, it's not true. In, in Miles's case, it's the fact that he has like that electroshock. It has his invisibility or just his own personal spin on how he moves and how he attacks the situation. Also, Prowler, get your shit together and just use thermal vision all the time. I don't know why you're using blue vision. How it should have ended. He's also so ominous in his own home. <laughs> That's how I always enter my place. I just creep around looking at everything. On your super boots with your theme song blaring. More elephants! I like how this is the coolest looking Prowler, yet he has probably the most shit Prowler has ever had, like, on him, affectation-wise. <laughs> yeah, everything that goes into this design is specifically there to make, to tell you the story of the Prowler without ever having to really do any exposition on him. Like, just from that design, you believe that he is the baddest motherfucker in the room. That's why I really... Like, I was very confused by the weird crown collar he has initially, but it does make him feel very royal. And it makes for that uh, beautiful moment in the end where uh, he has the crown above his head in the graffiti that Miles and, and Jefferson make. Like, it's, it's a really interesting motif. So, God, this is such a cool thing for the Prowler to do. I know. On his Prowler mobile. Oh, God, where did that come from? I'm so happy because I've always been obsessed with the Prowler, like, as a design and as a concept, and always been like, but I don't understand why this isn't good. Like... <laughs> The Prowler should be so cool. Why can't anybody make Prowler cool? Why isn't he Spider-Man's Captain Cold? No, we can only do Green Goblin. Everyone else is secondary. Or anyone with Sinister Six gets a free pass. Also, can you believe this? This movie gave us 
tons of villains, and yet they didn't decide to just rehash the Sinister Six. What a treat. I know, right? I'm, I, it's such a great time to be a Spider-Man fan right now because you're seeing so many aspects of the universe explored that you just never assumed would ever be in a movie. Like, who the hell would have ever thought we would have gotten Vulture and the Shocker in a Spider-Man film? Also, Penny's wheelies are the greatest thing in the world. (laughs) Just watching Penny do anything in any scene is delightful. (laughs) There's so much going on in the background. Also, Spider-Ham just drinking tea. Casually putting his drink down, but giving Aunt May enough time to put a coaster down for him. I like how it's agreed, no matter what medium it is, if it's a Spider-Verse story... One of the old-timey Spider-Mens have to be confounded by modern technology at (laughs) Peter's house. Going back to the idea that, hey, there's different villains in this one. Besides Batman, Spider-Man, in my mind, has the deepest roster of great Rose Gallery characters. And it's a shame because the movies really only want to touch on a couple of the big names. And there, there's a lot of even, like, B-tier Spider-Man characters that'd be fun to watch on the big screen. Like, Shocker would be cool. Uh, basically, anyone from the Superior Foes would be a blast, even though they're all kind of funky in their own way. Speaking here, of, we have Bane, Scorpion. <laughs> yes, I here, love even that. though we get characters we're familiar with, they're completely redone to make them interesting and fresh. Here we have a kind of mecha Scorpion, which is so cool. And Tombstone, which no one ever really thinks about Tombstone, but here he is. That's neat. A complete twist on Doc Ock. Uh, Prowler is actually in something for once. It's great. We have so many cool different characters and takes on existing characters. And really the simplest version of Tombstone ever. He's just Kingpin's top henchman. There. (laughs) You gave Tombstone a thing. (laughs) He's an albino really fast with guns. I still love, I, I swear, they made him look like Spider-Man the Animated Series Tombstone, though. Oh, totally. That There's no question there. That's too specific of a design. Even <laughs> Prowler is very evocative of that, that John Semper Prowler from the series. Yeah. Okay, the reason anyone cares about Prowler. <laughs> Pretty much. God, and with Scorpion, I love how... They took the idea of Bendis's ultimate scorpion, who's just a big giant gangster dude with a scorpion tattoo, essentially, and combined him with comic book scorpion, and then exaggerated enough to make this the coolest version of this character. Oh yeah, and and like so many games and other things have tried to mix scorpion and it never really quite works. And I love how they just said, you know, Scorpion was kind of supposed to be Spider-Man's Bane, so fuck it. He's Bane. He's Bane with, like, robot parts. Yeah, it always frustrates me that virtually every writer but Dan Slott and Chris Gage forget that Scorpion is supposed to be a tank. Yeah. That's why it's so genius that they pair him up with Rhino in the Insomniac game. Like, you get the two tank villains teaming up. Like, Scorpion never really works when you just try to make him bad Spider-Man <laughs> uh, in terms of, like, the fight scenes, because that's just Venom's thing.
Also, the small, subtle little glance to the side yeah. that Prowler knows he's going down. Something you wouldn't catch necessarily on your first viewing, but it's a very char- telling character moment. It really adds depth on multiple rewatches. And I love how they really don't put any kind of emphasis on the fact that in this version of things, Miles's uncle is a black man who's shot by a white authority figure, a rich white authority figure, because they they have faith in the audience's social literacy to, to know, like, okay, they'll like we don't have to say anything, we don't have to put, like, we don't have to be trite with it. Like, it's just something there. They can pick up on that if they do. If they don't want to see it that way, it works fine. Just uh, like just the pretext. Going off of that, I'm honestly surprised the movie didn't get the same amount of backlash that a lot of other socially minded movies typically get. Just just think of my like my own dad. Anytime he sees like something weird going on with the Marvel movies, like, well, in my day there was only one Thor. Now there's a Thor girl in the comics, and I, what's that about? I can be fear all kinds of ways. <laughs> yeah, or. Why, why is there a black Spider-Man? What's happening? Like a general confusion, I think, in older audiences. And that this movie somehow reassures them, like, don't worry, we haven't replaced your Spider-Man. We're not coming for you. We're trying to say, hey, there could be a new take on this character as well, who is just as interesting and deep and rich as the one you're used to. It's kind we of can miraculous. share the sandbox. It's kind of miraculous that this movie kind of just went under the radar as far as the hate mob went. Yeah. Yeah. They had Captain Marvel and Star Wars to worry about. <laughs> Pretty much. So, I mean, very similar to Black Panther. It's really, in my mind, a film about black excellence. And Black yeah. Panther right now, we discussed this earlier, is kind of getting shit on from everyone right now for being overrated, which just might be slang for, oh, it's popular, and that just makes me mad. Also, it says stuff I don't like. It makes people who are different than me happy, and that makes me feel excluded. Pretty much. Uh, since, since we're talking about it, like, I should say one of my favorite things about this film is the fact that racial identity is very much a part of the world these characters inhabit. It's not relevant to the story. It's not anything they milk, but I like that little touch of realism. Like, Miles is very much a kid from my black and Puerto Rican household. Like, I love how we finally have a Peter Parker who's Jewish. Ironically, in the Ultimate Spider-Man movie, where <laughs> considering Bendis always wrote his Peter as very Jewish. And something uh, a lot of family and children uh, targeted media has a really hard time dealing with like they can they either pretend that race does not exist or it's done in a very maudlin after school special way that we all uh, saw quite a bit growing up in the 90s yeah like oh here's the black history month episode of keenan and kill i love how it's just treated realistically like now these these are these characters identities this, this is the world that they inhabit it's it's extremely refreshing it rewards the audience's intelligence to pick up on that being very important. And if you're stupid, 
aka the kind of person who'd not like that kind of thing being in your entertainment uh because you'd have to be stupid um you'd just be too stupid to notice it's even there so I'm sorry, I got distracted because Spider-Ham's funny. <sighs> Spider-Ham is funny. <laughs> that is one of my top tier lines from this movie, though. Do animals talk in this world? Because I don't want to freak them out. Poor Gonky. <laughs> the character is essentially reduced to nothing in this version of the film. Well, I imagine while they were in the early stage of the stages of this movie, they saw Homecoming and went, Fuck. I believe that's like almost exactly dibs. what happened, actually. He said, well, actually, oh well. Which is for the best, because you watch the extended cut, all of the stuff with Gonke is very repetitive of what we're going to see, we see later on in the movie with Peter, and also just kind of undercuts Miles' arc. That, yeah. Like, again, it, that's from a version of the movie that was much more a straight adaptation of the ultimate spider-man comics that had the alternate universe stuff almost as like a middle of the movie plot twist more than the premise yeah and miles had a very different arc in that version which fascinated me and i'm glad they kind of dropped it because it's very run-of-the-mill animated movie i felt like character arc very about so. quitting and and all that it just it didn't work and there's a i'm fascinated i think it was um I can't believe I had to quote Tom Rothman. Um, Rothman <laughs> said when the uh, alternate cut was announced that pretty much not to get your hopes up, it, they just liked the idea of putting the alternate cut on the disc more for like almost film school purposes of like, this is how this was developed and why editing and rewrite decisions were made. Like, he said very clearly, that cut does not work. It doesn't work at all. No. no. no I, they're definitely right. There's enjoyable bits to it, but as a whole, it's not what I'd prefer over this in any way. Specifically, Spider-Man, the motion picture, which is the most Miller and Lord joke of all time, and it's hilarious. I don't know how that would have worked as exposition in this movie. Yeah, it's like, oh my god, it's still going. Like, all based on a page from the Bendis book. <laughs> Not that just as just a weird sh animated short that, that is incredible. There's Spider-Man doing commentary with his voice altered like Bart Simpson. Oh, it's fucking hilarious. So you, so you get to what's on screen at the moment. No. This is the kind of scene that separates this Spider-Man movie, I think, from everything else we've seen. It's this is the kind of heart of the movie, this stuff here, where we can have such sincere character moments. It's it's a little bit of a shame because the relationship between Miles and his dad is really well explored and developed, I think, here. And unfortunately that means the relationship with his mother doesn't get touched on as much. Yeah. She's kind of minimalized the character. But there, there's always Martha the Wayne syndrome, I like to call it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but here, this is such a you know, a heartwarming scene. And I feel a lot of other action movies wouldn't necessarily make the time for something like this. Or if they do, it's in a truncated form or something a little more hackneyed. Yeah, again, this is like this is Jefferson's Lawrence Fishburne moment, which you would see like 
in an indie movie or you would see it like in a big prestige film that like let's just let this actor act and it's incredible to see that with a cgi character and uh it's just so sad you want to see miles get up and you know hug his dad or tell him he loves you but he he's physically incapable at the moment which makes her you know reunion at the end of the film all the more strong uh, more strong all the stronger better God, those facial lines are so incredible. Didn't they? Uh, not not to go fo- too uh, far off base. Didn't they have to like construct an algorithm to like, manually or like to automatically place in the uh, the pencil lines for the facial expressions so they wouldn't have to do it by hand? No idea, so. unfortunately. I believe so. Uh, yeah, I believe so. I mean, pretty much this movie yeah. created a lot of new technology. It's really exciting. Like, that blew my mind that you can train a system to make facial expressions like that. Or if you pay attention to Miles's face uh, between the early parts of the movie and the later parts, it probably goes scene by scene, but I haven't been paying that close attention. Uh, the brown color that fills up his iris exceeds past the the actual black line of the eye. But the amount it exceeds that changes from scene to scene. It's it's consistent with the shots, but they actually animated it differently depending on the time of the movie. Neat little touch. I don't know if it's trying to say anything specific about the character. Uh, early on in the movie, it's really, really past the lines. In the last scene, if you look close, it's, it's pretty much on the lines. I don't know if it's one of those things like they were saying after the spider bite, he's all out of sorts, and visually he should look that way. Or as he gets his character together, they get closer. Or if it's just a fluke and they had to animate differently all the time. I don't know. I, um, so I... No, I'm sorry. Go on. I was just going to say, we're now watching one of the most beautiful scenes in superhero movie history. Yeah. <laughs> to top this, anything. Um, I love Miles' costume being graffiti because not only is it a great thing of Miles being graffiti artist, so he, he you know, he, he's taking something that's him and creating his costume out of it, but I love how in taking up the mantle of Spider-Man, he puts on Spider-Man's costume, but he paints over it with personalization. Specifically and I, with something that's a symbol of his relationship with his uncle, too. Yeah, exactly. It's such a, like, perfect personification of the completion of Miles's arc and everything inside of Miles. I agree with all of that, but the terrible movie watcher inside my head goes, yeah, but there's all the paint fumes. That would smell terrible. <laughs> oh, Miles is just tripping balls this entire <laughs> Yeah, none of this is there happening. There is no collider. He's yeah. still in that room, suffocating on the Spidey tape. <laughs> Also, I've never appreciated the fact that they all just got there on the bus. (laughs) (laughs) Your legs are going to be tired. So apparently this is all kind of left over from an early version of the movie where Fisk was actually running for mayor. Yeah, it was really fascinating to hear. He's pulling the penguin on this? (laughs) I know. 
So I'm still convinced this is a reference to a single episode of 80s Spider-Man where he's undercover as a waiter with a little bow tie. I just want to know, why didn't Peter ever tell MJ that Fisk was evil? (laughs) Good question. He had to protect her, Mike. Maybe she knows, but she's playing the long con. I don't know. There are certain parts of this movie that maybe don't 100% add up. Like then there's uh, the deleted scene of Fist speaking at like Spider-Man's memorial, and MJ like hands the mic off to him. It's so weird. Yeah. But I'm thinking stuff like Gwen going back to school to wait for other Spider. Also people. really weird and doesn't make any sense. Not not really. I, they can paper over it, and the rest of the movie has so much goodwill. I just kind of shrug. But yeah. <laughs> there are some moments in this film where you kind of go. That's okay, what happens maybe when your that movie doesn't... has 9,000 iterations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, also, there's a version of this where... Spider-Man Noir watching from the background. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Spider-Gwen uh, going to Miles' school is probably left over from a version where there wasn't really a Spider-Verse. Yeah, well, even when she's in, like, Doc Ock's lab, she's apparently in disguise because she's wearing glasses. But she looks surprised to see them. I don't know. It, it almost feels like too, like she maybe had a job or an internship there or something. I can't remember. Parts of it don't quite make a hundred percent perfect through line, but that's yeah, you know, whatever. It's still weird to think that there was a version where Ock was still just going to be comic book Doc Ock and was going to be a friend of the family, and there was going to be a whole relationship between <laughs> Spider Man and Doctor Octopus. They were going to get into. It's like, how, how did they think they were going to have that much time? <laughs> All the spider This is already surprisingly long for an animated film. Like, two hours? That's pretty hefty. For the amount of hard work that has to go into creating all this animation. I'm, I'm surprised we got as much movie as we did. God, that extended cut is just the goddamn Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so before we get into the super big finale here... One thing that was really on my mind the last rewatch of this film was another comic inspiration, but this time from our, our good friends over at DC Comics. Everyone give them a hand. But, uh, oh no, hey. my hand has been replaced with water. Oh no! no! What have we done? Extreme. But the whole time watching this, I'm kind of thinking of it as like the, the opposite of Neil Gaiman's Whatever Happened to the Cape Crusader. In that film... Batman is at his funeral, and he's seeing different iterations of his rogues gallery and his supporting cast basically eulogize him in different ways, all talking about different ways that he died. And the story is supposed to represent the ultimate death story for Batman. Whereas this is kind of like the ultimate origin story for a specific Spider-Man, it kind of shows that they all have kind of similar inspirations, and they, they all have to go through certain things. They all have certain similar characteristics. This is like the ultimate origin story and whatever happens to the Cape Crusaders, the ultimate end story. But I still like how they pair. So, you know, right after watching the movie the other day while taking my notes, I had to run back and read that comic. It's only two issues, so you can get through it really fast. Uh, but, that's uh, a very apt comparison. The, the one I always go to, uh, perhaps just because it's so obvious and so recent, is the Lego Batman movie. Like, it's kind of miraculous that within, like, two years of each other, we got two, like, CGI animated tributes to everything that is wonderful about these characters and celebrates their entire history and what they still have to offer us in the future. Yeah. 
But uh, specifically for Cape Crusader, uh, there's there's one line, end of the book. Uh, spoilers, Batman is in fact dead. They're not lying to you for the two issues. Uh, but uh, Batman meets his mother and she tells him, you don't get heaven or hell. Do you know you? Uh, do you know the only reward you get for being Batman? You get to be Batman. And when you're a child, you get a handful of years of real happiness with your father, with me. It's more than some people get. You're done now. It's your time. You can stop fighting just for a few more years. It's over. And I, I kind of love the way that short series sums up how these characters exist beyond the border of the comic pages. They're always going to be reiterated and reincarnated and reinterpreted. And if you think about it, these characters have existed for, well, what, 60 plus years now? And we just keep getting them. They're continually in print. There's movie versions and TV animations. We're, we're getting thousands of iterations of these characters, but we can always find something core about them that we identify with so we can point and go, that's Batman or that's Spider-Man. And to me, this movie distills all of that perfectly. We get that there are different takes on all this stuff, but they're all of a kind. They're, they're all the same deep, deep down. Even, yes, Spider-Ham, who just dropped an anvil on the scorpion. <sighs> I say how much I love how this movie buries the fact that these characters are built to be arch enemies of the various Spider-Mans. <laughs> It's like, oh, that's why Tombstone is in this movie, so we can box Spider-Man Noir. <laughs> this is one beat that I will actually stand up and say I don't get. Like, it takes special time to show that Penny is very, very sad that her robot has died. But it never quite, to me, establishes the link that the robot is sentient. We know the spider is supposed to be sentient. She has a link with the spider through the robot. Is that why it's sad? Because she can't communicate with the spider in the same way? Because the suit's down? It feels like such a big moment in the film where the beat isn't really quite earned. Especially since we see the suit is totally fine in a couple of minutes when they all return to their own dimensions. Um, that's, that's a nitpick. <laughs> if, if that's the one thing wrong with this movie, this movie is, you know, A+. It's her uh, father's robot make more robots it's all right is that you watching the end of big hero six why is everybody sad about baymax i can just make another and play <laughs> six but uh yes they probably have backups of his memory too like that whole thing is just a, a reboot situation oh the big hero six animated series retconned it so that before the end of the movie baymax was rebuilt ah It's actually, See, um, if you, if you pay attention to it. If they just killed Penny Spider, I would definitely get it. I'd be like, oh, it is sad. I'm I have no emotions now. I actually thought originally that's what they were going with. Apparently Penny was originally yeah. supposed to die. But um, oh, it's actually a very grim. subtle arc, if you actually kind of pay close attention, that weirdly still yeah. plays into the themes where, like, the robot represents Penny's father, and it's destroyed here. So when she goes back, she has to build her own. From scratch. I never really caught on to that, but yeah, that does follow. God damn it, Spider-Man into the Spider-Man. I know. <laughs> We're having personal loss. Meanwhile, I guess Spider-Man Noir's subtle arc is that he gets really famous in his 
in his own universe because of the Rubik's Cube? <laughs> uh, so how does that work? When he goes back to his world and the Rubik's Cube has color, can they see the color? Is this like a Pleasantville situation? In my mind, <laughs> the cube is colored, but when he goes back to his world, it's still black and white, and everyone's just like, whatever, they're dots. Well, he actually opens up the lament configuration. <laughs> I really hope in the sequel they use this hammer. Like, Miles pulls out a hammer from his pocket. Oh, he just Harley Quinns it? Yes. Goodbye, Spider-Ham, you're too pure for this world! Can he legally say that? <laughs> Also, I have no idea how old Spider-Gwen is supposed to be. <laughs> it's kind I of suppose. inconsistent. She's slightly, uh, she's a year older than him. Whatever. Who's 13, according to the extended universe, but she's also been Spider-Gwen for several years. It's very confusing. Also, she yeah, looks like right. she's in her early to mid-20s. Yeah, Spider, like, uh, comic book Spider-Gwen is supposed to be, like, in, like, at the very end of 16, I believe. Yeah. And moving into 17 by the end of the series. So, yeah, it's... Once again, like, that's what happens when a movie is rewritten a thousand times. <laughs> and uh, we've already lost Spider-Gwen. She's away. But I, I do like how her character, too, gets an arc that wraps in with everyone else's, where she has this fear she's running away from. Hers is, of course, uh, friendship. The movie makes it pretty clear. But it, it's nice that they resolve that. And the true mark of resolution is them returning back to their own places. Like, they're actually not running anymore. They're they're going back. And it's so nice to see uh, that moment between Gwen and Miles, where not only do you get the like completion of her little mini-character arc of accepting friends, you have that nice moment of them just kind of turning to the camera and saying, yeah, they're not going to kiss. <laughs> We're not that kind of movie. Well, that would that would break... Gwen's arc. She's she needs friends. She needs to open herself up to just friendship, platonic relationships, which she gets here. If it jumps into a romance immediately, it's like ah, you just broke it. There was an arc there. It's it's a very refreshing bit of restraint. She don't need no man. Also, Miles just convinced Spider-Man not to kill himself. Yeah, we haven't <laughs> talked about that at all. Uh, and I we won't. <laughs> I love just the subtleness of the fact there's a fucking suicide arc in this movie with Peter B. Parker in a kid's movie. And it is resolved in such a, once again, beautifully subtle way, but that's also very realistic. Like, they never address it outright. Peter B. Parker is going to commit suicide by using this. But at least he has to go out like a hero. But this is all just a suicide plan. Even though when he was um, in Miles' dorm and, you know, trying to get him to get Miles to get the gooper off of him, you could tell that he really wanted Miles to succeed. But ultimately, he just still wants to fucking kill himself. And I love how Miles recognizes what Peter's doing and never addresses any big way and just tells him, it's okay. You gotta go home now. It's such a You have to go exchange. be Spider-Man. Yeah. On the plus side, when he goes home, at least he has that slice of pizza waiting for him. 
<laughs> there is that. That's something I think is very interesting about the way the film uses Peter. Like, they, they, like there's the the plot point of Mary Jane and Peter breaking up because of Spider-Man not trusting himself to like raise a kid. Mm-hmm. Now that's resolved with uh, his mentorship with Miles. But something that also struck me the last time I watched it was how in seeing like this remixed version of himself and Miles, Peter is learning to appreciate the idea of Spider-Man again. Like and in that, like Peter's kind of the surrogate for the audience. Yeah. I think like like here we're gonna show you everything that made Spider-Man great in the first place by changing everything just a little bit to make you see it with fresh eyes. Like, that's something why I love that little moment during the escape from Alchemix where Peter says, I'm proud of us. Not, I'm proud of you, I'm proud of us. Which is a joke, but also is saying something really important. Like, yeah. oh yeah, I'm Spider-Man, aren't I? Hey, <laughs> look at look at me being Spider-Man again. He immediately goes back to his dimension and then invests in a new Spider-Burger. It does not go well. It's a food truck, though, so at least, you know, less overhead. <laughs> I love this fantastic voyage environment they're in now with the uh, the Kirby dots as uh, like almost as red blood vessels. Yeah. What a pain in the ass it must have been to do this whole last sequence because the entire time the backgrounds have just been trippy as hell. It's not like, oh, we animated tube and we just put the characters in and spun around a digital camera. There is constant fluid motion happening all around them that is constantly shifting in color and size and position. It's it's not something I'd make myself do. I'm too lazy for that. But boy, is it stunning. So I cannot believe that the shoulder touch was a fucking last minute addition. I know. It it's feels such so a important. Well incorporated callback. It's such a great fuck you to Fisk. Like I'm going to defeat you using the legacy of my uncle you murdered. Well, I'm really bummed I never saw this movie in actual 3D. I'm very curious what that would have looked like. Let's melt your brain. This is one of the few times now where I'm like, yeah, okay, 3D I'd really want to see. 3D as a trend is pretty much dead at this point, but this movie would have been worth it to track down a theater that had it that way. Oh, well, blast. I have to admit, I'm still really sad we did not get the power of the multiverse in the palm of my hand. <laughs> still happens to, totally off screen, I still say it. Yeah, we didn't see her body, so she is still tripping through the multiverse. That's how it works. If you don't see the corpse, they're still alive, like Toad in X-Men. Yeah, Joker logic. Exactly. <laughs> Could you imagine, I'm being dead serious, too. Could you imagine if the sequel idea was fucking Spider-Verse for Doc Ox. Oh, no. 
Like, you have Olivia, you have comic book Dr. Octopus, you have Alfred Merlina coming back as movie Oc. Yes! You could have, like, fucking uh, 90s comic Lady Octopus and her alternate reality. Oh, all, God. All vying to become the superior octopus. No, this all devolves into the Sinister 36, where there's six versions of each member of the Sinister Six, and Spider-Man has to beat all of them. <laughs> That actually is kind of a, an interesting point you made, Mike. They could totally do the, the superior Spider-Man as the leader of a group <laughs> of villains. Like, with the multiverse idea, like they have such a big playground to play in. Oh yeah, I really hope they go all in with just a full fucking cinematic universe based on, off of this. You get Miles movies, you get Spider-Verse movies, you get Spider-Gwen movies. Give me, give, me, give me my goddamn Silk movie in this style. Really hey, we hope. are finally getting Amy Pascal's all-female Spider-Man spinoff in the one context where that would make sense. <laughs> Say, I really want them to stop making Spider-Man spinoffs that aren't in the multiverse. Like, you, you don't have to do Venom 2. It's okay. You I am dying for Venom 2, I'll have you know. Same. Recon Venom Carnage. Okay. You can have it. You do you. <laughs> Damn right. Boy, I hope they find a better red wig. That's awesome. <laughs> well, that I, I will with. defend Venom, but no, that, that that I don't know what was going on in that after credit scene. I don't think anybody knew I, what was going on in the after credit scene on that, the day. That I think... I think was filmed in somebody's basement. <laughs> you mean a top security prison? So, I, so Jefferson just forever they... thinks that Spider-Man like just came on to him, right? Oh yeah. The track on the soundtrack is Spider-Man loves you. <laughs> Spider-Man just loves law. Also, this is the most Miles thing in the universe, just him talking to a crowd and fist bumping a baby. <laughs> uh, I made the mistake of trying to research this film on YouTube today, and I stumbled on a video that was uh, talking about how Into the Spider Verse fixed Miles Morales. Oh, oh I, 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 I always see that. I, yeah, that awful character that never worked. <laughs> it was a bit of a head scratcher to me, but I'm like, all right, yes, sure. Oh, you, Captain you... Midnight. Take I, that's I, I don't know who it was by. It was one of those, oh man, why did I click this? This was a mistake. You know what? You don't do you. <laughs> you do you differently. Roll into a I hole love... and die. Sorry. Going... You know, uh, now we just stole a joke from Ghostbusters 2. I'm pretty sure uh, Vigo's assistant goes to the office and says that at one point, like, whatever you're doing, do less of it. Don't do you. So I love how actually seeing Peter go back to Mary Jane was another Rothman idea. Because for some reason, the thing he's genius at is knowing when to tell people to add a happy ending. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't truly necessary, but it makes everything feel so much better that you see it. Yeah. Also, this Although is really interesting. When they do a sequel, Peter and her will have to get divorced again just to put him back at square one. No, no, she miscarriages. Um, oh God. God, so dark. Also, I love the first time you see Miles, he's listening to Sunflower. 
at in the morning and the last time you see Miles, he's listening to Sunflower in bed at night. And I love how it makes it feel like a complete closed book on like a chapter in his life. Like it's almost like it's a, a structure of a day. Like that's brilliant yeah. in my opinion. It's a really nice touch. I didn't notice it all before. Nice. Yeah. Was that no, that could have been. Was that the first the whip we actually saw in comic book letters on the page? I'm pretty sure it's uh during the Alchemex scene as well. Say, so. It has to be in there. I mean that's quintessential Spidey, but I, I don't remember seeing it until the credits. That's weird. It's at least it's said several times. So, Mike, I've been meaning to ask. Has Fuck partic- Mary Kill Spider Penny. Spider Gwen. They're all children. Spider No, let's let Jamie finish. I don't like this weird pedophile <laughs> Spider Man thing. I didn't think this through before I made my choice. Yeah, right. Jesus Christ. You started with the youngest one as well, so that's good. <laughs> The bad thing is, the only right, like the best answer is Spider Ham. I don't like being punched <laughs> in this corner. Oh God! <laughs> I said Spider Nor. But uh, we saw his ass in that deleted scene. Um, <laughs> as specifically a, a comic book fan who came of age in the '90s, how much does it tickle this shit out of you to see Alchemics becoming the most important? <laughs> organization in the spider-man universe just because of dan slot speaking of 90s spidey i didn't even think of this connection before but is it possible that when they're in doc ox lab all the scientists have laser guns because it's the 90s animated spider series where everyone had laser guns <laughs> i'd buy it i could see that i don't think that's ever been stated but i wouldn't be too surprised I love how many video game Spider-Mans there are there. Also, I fucking love that now throughout this entire series, because you know it's coming back, especially with the fucking end credit tag. Alchemex is going to be an evil organization in a goddamn cinematic universe. (laughs) (laughs) As it should be. I'm fascinated that that was Roxanne until like the last minute. I guess until they decided to do that scene. I hope in the next Spider-Man we get credits. Uh, I hope in the next Spider-Man we get credits like these, like as a James Bond movie. Oh, that'd be fantastic! Just thousands of spider silhouettes and Spider-Man dancing around them as there's dramatic music playing. I love how delightful Spider-Man closing credits sequences have become over the past few years. (laughs) So it was really supposed to be Roxxon. How lame would that have been? I know. Roxxon is such a... Just, just let it go as far as comics continuity goes. Like, they don't do anything. They're just evil. Yeah, like, I mean, they're used in all of the... Um, in a lot of the Marvel shows, like uh, Cloak and Dagger, I know Runaways, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., like, all that stuff uses Roxxon because, you know, simple. They're lesser aim, but, like, you don't use Roxxon in a movie. Okay, they're so popular. There was a Lego set from a couple years back that was a, an exploding Roxanne truck that came with Vision and Captain America, and uh, even it was even there in the Legos. Everyone uses them. That's what you they, go with. They, they sound like a fucking g- g- gas company. Roxanne. I, well, I think it was a gas truck, so that made sense. 
It's like making the villains an evil company that sounds sort of like Exxon was really biting in like the seventies. Yeah. At that at that point, just bring F.A. Schist back. The only cool thing is, in Agent Carter, the head of Roxxon was Ray Wise. <laughs> Fucking Illuminati, Ray Wise at that. <laughs> and technically, they were once ran by Norman Osborn in disguise, so Alchemax really has Roxxon beat. And it's just a fun word to say. Alchemax. Though we have to admit, as far as corporate arch goes, no one can top Stag Industries. <laughs> they were ran by William Sadler, goddammit. They I unleashed the Metamorpho into the universe. <laughs> I think about that sometimes, that William Sadler was Simon Stag, and in some version of things where he was not killed by the reverse flash, dramatically, he With created Metamorpho. With his knife he brought from the future. <laughs> It's actually the reverse version of a duller knife. So, <laughs> makes sense. Alright, so, for the sequel, who are you guys putting money on for villains? I'm going with Jackal, the Jackal, the Jackal, the Jackal, and then Chameleon playing one of the Jackals. Oh, they just do clones instead of alternate universes? Oh, God. If anyone could redeem the clone <laughs> stories, it, it would be these these uh, this creative team. I mean, we get uh, sexy Peter as essentially Ben Riley in this movie, so it's not like they're they're not willing to reference that stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go weird with it. I'm going to say Ezekiel. My God. We're already halfway there. We're in slot territory, and, you know, he'll bring back anything. Uh, we actually get Morlan in a fucking even larger Spider-Verse yes. movie that has Supeda Man. Look out, it's Big Wheel. <laughs> yes. I mean, in, in all honesty, considering the Spider-Verse is here, we are pretty much, like, midway to Morlan. <laughs> God, could you see them making Moreland work? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honestly, like, I would put my money on uh, Liv returning in some fashion just because of how fucking in love they are with Catherine Holland's performance. And that whole very setup dynamic, they cut out. Too, with all the extra arms speeding around. And her thing is, she designs machines that open up the multiverse, so she's kind of the perfect uh, bridge character. It's very true. For more stories. Unless they bring in Spot, and he's just pulling them out of holes. I could see that, too. I what if that's see... all the sequel bait they do? They just have Spot show up, and Spider-Men are popping out of his body. Oh, they just have him, like, chained up in a basement. Oh god. We need we need more Spider-Men to help uh, fucking fight the Kingpin this time. Just reaching into his stomach to pull out different Spider-Men. Please now let me Marvel die. Fill me. 
Aunt Mage is feeding him gruel in his own feces. What? <laughs> Why are you treating Doppelganger that way? <laughs> oh my I god, can we get Doppelganger in this series? He would look so cool in this style. No, no, no. The villain of the next Spider-Man movie? Spider-Side! <laughs> I have a mouth! <laughs> oh my god, what if Prodigy at dusk showed up? Oh, we get the slingers. Yes. <laughs> Who would ever see that coming? I don't think you can go wrong with some classic Hobgoblin, but that's just me. Maybe that's boring. Fucking nothing would make me happier than Hobgoblin in this animated universe. Oh, in that style? You fucking imagine? Oh, we finally get Sterling K. Brown as Hobgoblin, the thing we were promised in Spectacular. Oh, now I'm reminded that was a thing, and I'm sad. On the other hand, what we were just graciously gifted with was an actual album of Spider-Man Christmas songs. <laughs> what a thing. Is this movie delivers on all possible cylinders. It turns out Chris Pine has a beautiful singing voice. You got Chris Pine, you use him. I'm still impressed that Chris Pine did a voice for Spider-Man. This doesn't really sound that much like Chris Pine. It's it's impressive. God, is he a really good Spider-Man? Yeah. Also, another thing we were gifted: Oscar Isaac as Spider-Man 2099. What? Which you know he did not have to be talked into. Boy, that's oh, got to be the ultimate sequel tease. They gotta they gotta get him for Spidey too, right? Oh, they have to. <laughs> I mean, this I, makes an incredible end joke, so it's probably fine the way it is. But y you can't tease us with Oscar Isaac being Spidey 2099 and then not follow through. And I love how it's both holy shit sequel tease that just ends on, no, it's just a joke. The, so we can go either way with jokes it. Of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Goes all, ends think... on a fucking Spider-Man meme most people in the audience don't even get. I don't know. My audience was into it. They they all got a pretty good kick. Oh yeah, and introduces this device ubiquitous. though. Plus the build up to it too. It seems so serious, like it's going to be your traditional. This will be round two, <laughs> and then immediately it cuts to the, the fucking cloud just rolling in off to the side, yeah. and going back. And it's Oscar Isaac doing this. <laughs> I love the recreation of the voices, which are very accurate. Yes, and J. Jonah Jameson. That is the first time Jameson has appeared in a fucking Spider-Man movie since Spider-Man 3. Uh. Also, I do think there's something so beautiful about ending this love letter to Spider-Man with the very first time Spider-Man was ever in an animation. <laughs> so even that, like, even that ridiculous joke is kind of sweet and appropriate and a great way to end the film. Yeah, it's a celebration I mean, you of take history. That as sincere. We're going back to where it all started. And sure, we're poking fun at it, but you have to recognize the fact it's the granddaddy of all Spider-Mans. Besides, well, the comics, but whatever. Spider-Mans. Spider-people? Spider-Man. Spider-families. Spideys, I think, would be the easiest way to say it. I believe the appropriate term, Cody, is Spider's Man. 
Oh, okay. That is terrifying. Spider's Man. I don't oh. like that one. Oh, God. What if they work in Spider's Man from Earth X? <laughs> the sequel. Hard, the hard one pass. character they never expected with his illusion powers. Yeah. Well, I we can't... can only go down terrible routes from here. So, <laughs> folks, we've reached the end of the film. Thank you for joining us. If you want to hear more Bop and Movie commentaries or regular episodes, you can find that at, and this is a cool thing, we actually have our very own domain now, boxofficepulp.com. What? This is the first I've heard of this, Cody. What a shocking thing. If you were to go into your browser, be it Google or Opera or whatever kids use these days, DuckDuckGo, and type in www.boxofficepulp.com and hit that enter button, you will be taken to a website with our stuff. It's pretty goddamn cool if I do so say it myself. Or That's if you're so old school. convenient. It's incredibly convenient. I don't, I don't have to waste all my time typing in all kinds of HTTPQRSs. I don't have to deal with Blogspot and their shenanigans. It's great. Although, if you want to find us on iTunes, we are there as well. You can subscribe to us. Uh, you can find our Facebook page on Facebook under Box Office Pulp. And we are on Twitter. Just look for the handle Box Office Pulp. Go check us out, folks. Anyways, that's a wrap. Let's get the hell out of here. Okay, okay, okay. I've got it. For the sequel, The Spider Gang Battles, The Thousand. Comic books are fucking stupid. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. Admit it, you were trying to remember who the fuck the thousand Oh, I, I, I don't think I ever will. I don't think I know who they were in the first place. That was the one time Garth Ennis wrote a Spider-Man story. It was the first arc of Tangled Web. And he was a dude who saw Peter get bitten by the spider ran up to the dead spider that was left on the floor and ate it, and it transformed him into 1,000 spiders. Remember 10,000 oh, ants from Rick and Morty? He's yep. just that. Like, that's where that comes from. Oh, Christ. I love Garth Ennis. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.